Welcome to Call Your Girlfriend, a podcast for long distance besties everywhere. I am Aminatu So. And I'm Ann Friedman. Hey, Ann Friedman. Hey, hey, Aminatu So. Are you excited? What's going that- on? <laughs> <laughs> I was just going to ask if you're excited that we're not really here. We are pre recording um, this intro because guess what? We are taking a break. This is the first week of our break. Man, I wonder what like current Aminatu is up to right now. Oh, the parallel universe of recording in advance. I love it. I hope I hope future Aminatu slash current Aminatu for those who are listening is like so relaxed, is wearing like the coziest cozies, eating the best snacks. That is what I hope. I bet you she's spiraling. I bet you she's spiraling. No matter <laughs> no. where she is, she's spiraling. <laughs> spiraling. Spiraling. She's eating a croissant. She's spiraling. I can I can feel it. I mean, I I hope that one part of that is true, the croissant <laughs> part. <laughs> Cho- chocolate croissant. <laughs> great, great. <laughs> okay, what's going on in the spiral universe this week? Okay, <laughs> listen, maybe maybe this is this is actually a good episode for those of us who may or may not be spiraling today because we are digging into our archive and uh, rerunning an interview with the incredible Adrian Marie Brown whose work always makes me feel more centered in myself, more ready to do the work, more at home in the world. I treat her book, uh, Pleasure Activism, like a devotional. <laughs> it's, just on my, it's on my bedside table. And whenever I wake up in the morning, because I don't really have a, you know, I don't have a grounding practice in my life. That's what I do. I like pick it up and then I just open to whatever page and I read it. And I was like, please don't spiral out of control. Just do pleasure activism. Ugh. I So anyway, I originally spoke with Adrienne Marie Brown um, about pleasure activism, subtitled The Politics of Feeling Good, uh, back in June of 2019. Um, if you are not familiar with Adrienne Marie's work, um, they're a pleasure activist, a facilitator, a writer, um, an Octavia Butler scholar, and a doula. And um, since this conversation was recorded, um, Adrienne Marie also has a newer book called We Will Not Cancel Us and Other Dreams of Transformative Justice. So if, like us, you are a pleasure activism superfan, there is a new book in the catalog, in the Adrienne Marie Brown catalog for you to pick up. So here's Adrienne Marie Brown from June of 2019. Adrienne, welcome to Call Your Girlfriend. Thank you, Anne. It's really good to be here with you. Your book came into my life in my favorite way to receive a book, uh, which is that a person I really loved wrote a handwritten note to me about how much she knew I would love it and mailed it to me. Ooh, that is good. I know. She saw you read in Minneapolis. And there's something about that level of personal endorsement and connection to someone who I don't see every day. Shout out to Becky. Uh, That that really made me... Yeah, that really... It's also always good to get a chance to have a positive Becky experience, too. So that's... Oh, 
This Becky is a corrective Becky. (laughs) Like, (laughs) Becky's on point. This Becky's good. (laughs) Yes. Um, Yeah. So, uh, but I want to ask you up front, maybe, if you've got your elevator pitch for what is pleasure activism? Mm, That's great. Yeah. My elevator pitch is pleasure activism is... um, all of us who are trying to make the world a better place in in general, like in in a number of different ways, actually tuning into um, what it would take to have justice and liberation be among the most pleasurable experiences we can have. Um, And what I'm the, that's sort of the key question at the heart of it is like, is this even possible (laughs) to have justice and liberation (laughs) feel good? Um, And it's a beautiful Uh, place to research because the main research is looking at things that do make us feel good and understanding like, what is it that makes us feel good? Is it aligned with what we believe for the world? And then how do we bring that over into the realm of pleasure? And it's pretty exciting. (laughs) That's the elevator. (laughs) It's exciting. (laughs) I I mean, yeah, I mean, 100%. And I, I think that so often these terms, pleasure and activism are perceived as being at odds. Like activism is, we think of it as like, you know, eat your vegetables, do the hard work, um, put yourself on the line and stretch yourself, um, you know. And and I would love to hear you talk about um, whether you always felt that these two ideas belong together or what kind of journey you've had yourself on getting to that elevator pitch. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, I definitely didn't always believe that the two went together. Um, I actually felt embarrassed and ashamed for the fact that like there was such a strong pleasure bend in my system. And I, you know, I was like, maybe I'm just not a true radical person because I care so much about being in a hot tub regularly um, <laughs> or, you know, taking care of my body, getting massages, feeling good, sex, wanting to talk about drugs. Like there were all these taboo areas of my life that I was just like, oh, I would be a great revolutionary if only I wasn't like this. Um, and then <laughs> at a certain point, um, I noticed, I remember like there was a period when I was doing, I did voter organizing back around like the 2004 election. I had started in the harm reduction field. So I had started out with like great exposure to people who were doing work around safe injection sites and user determined processes for getting to, you know, not abstinence necessarily, but getting in right relationship with the substances that they needed to move through their lives. And I I then was doing voter organizing and I was like, you know, the the harm reduction world was really enjoyable. It felt like whole humans were welcome there. And people who were not pretending that they had it all together, but kind of the opposite, right? Like harm reduction is a lot of people who are like, I, yeah, I do have addiction issues or yeah, I am a sex worker. I'm figuring this stuff out and I'm figuring out how to do this from a powerful place, but I may not be there right now. And so there was so much more humanity in it. And then I felt like when I went over into a place that felt like, oh, this is explicitly organizing, it felt like we had to leave our whole humanity behind. And we had to show up and just like read very serious economic text and have a very serious analysis for the world. Part of what it means to be an organizer in any way is to say, I recognize that we're in danger, that the world is not all good, that there's parts of what's unfolding that I am responsible for and how do I take on that responsibility? And so I think for a lot of us, it's like the scale of the problems is so big that no matter how much you give, you can never really touch that scale, 
right? Like Martin Luther King, you know, we all quote Martin Luther King, but we all still live in racism, right? Like Mm. you can be massive and have a huge impact and it's still very small in the river of our human existence. And part of what I'm positing is in that river, we need to create spaces that people want to move towards. We have to be more compelling than we have been. It's not enough to just tell people, no, the sky is falling. You have to talk about new skies and you have to talk about what feels good under this sky and you have to be practicing what feels good under this sky. Right now, I I do most of my work in the realm of Black liberation work and I love it. I love being around the people. I love laughing at lunch. I love the, you know, feeding each other. I love dancing together. We had a Harlem Renaissance party at one of the gatherings we were at recently. And I just loved watching everyone show up in their finery and their attitudes and just the beauty of it all. I was like, this is how it should feel. And it should feel welcoming. Bring your whole self here because your whole self is what we need. I mean, I can actually sense the pleasure that you feel in that space when you describe it and talk about yeah. it. Yeah. Um, and is is that something that you had to learn to prioritize as well? I mean, I'm 37 years old and just starting to pay attention to my feelings. Um, so Yay, congratulations. That, <laughs> thank you. <laughs> so this book arrived at a good point for me. But I, I also think that, um, you know, what you're talking about is a skill set that a lot of people in their families of origin or in the schools and communities they grew up in are not um, are not really encouraged to think about. Oh, no, we're discouraged, right? So I'm an anti-capitalist. <laughs> and so I really believe, <laughs> yeah, I really, really believe that a lot of how we are oriented towards pleasure is distorted by capitalism because capitalism wants us to want to change. It wants us to pursue pleasure, but only in ways that it can benefit from. And that creates a massive distortion away from the places that just naturally feel pleasure, right? So most of us in our bodies, if we're left to our own devices, we'll figure out lots of ways to feel pleasure in our bodies. And we figure it out pretty young. Like if you've ever been around kids, you know, (laughs) like I have a lot of babies in my life and all of them know that they have genitals that feel good right? (laughs) Like they're all like, hmm. You know, I remember when one of my nibblings um, kind of figured out his penis was something that he could touch. And he was just like, wow, this is amazing. I'm only doing this now for the next like two years, right? And I was like, okay, how do we keep you safe? Because (laughs) that's not the way this world is constructed. And both, you know, at the level of like, there's a lot of harm that comes to children and their children's bodies, but also there's a ton of shame, right? That like, the same thing that happened to me that probably happened to you that probably happens to most of the people who are listening to this is at some point when you were just feeling good in your body, someone said, that's wrong. What you're doing is wrong. It's shameful. You need to not do that. You will be punished if you do that. Hair will grow in the palms of your hands if you do that. You will go to hell if you do that. Um, you will be rejected from school if you do that. Like You will feel horrible if you keep doing that thing that feels good to you right now. Yeah. And eventually all of that messaging, all of that control mechanism, all of that really gets inside our systems. And then we spend years fumbling around performing sexual pleasure, performing what we think will please, you know, patriarchy, right? Like I definitely came up with, I'm like, oh, how do I need to perform sexual arousal so that my male partners will be turned on? And then how do I need to perform sex to make sure that, you know, he has an orgasm? 
And like that was, you know, I was like inside of that somewhere I might also feel good, but that's definitely not the purpose of this. Um, And it took a long time and a lot of bad sex uh, before I was like, wait a second, (laughs) I have a clitoris. (laughs) And on my own, I have a great time with my clitoris. Like, why wouldn't that be a part of what we're doing here? You know, or like, you know, had lovers of a lot of other different genders who were like, yeah, that that penis centrification of all things is not actually necessary here. We can center ourselves and center our bodies and our pleasure. And for me, it has come in that very intimate realm, but I don't think it has to come through sex. I think it can come through lots of different practices, like getting in touch with your own body, getting in touch with what you actually want. A lot of people go through life and spend days and years with no clue of what they actually want, just moving along. Yeah. And I know that this, I mean, it's funny. I, um, I wanted to ask you what role you see this book playing. I mean, I, I almost view it like a reference book and I mean that with all love yes. in my heart. You know, it's, it's very pleasurable okay to with read. It. When I hear you start to talk about, you know, your experiences that led to this book, I think about like the way that this book is seeming to offer not a roadmap, but some, some ideas some about pathways. where to go next. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, um, I knew that I wanted to do this book for a long time before I got the, uh, the nerve to actually begin writing it. And one of the things that gave me that nerve was um, while Lisa Factor Bershers was over at Bitch Magazine, um, she and I worked out doing a column there. So I did a column called The Pleasure Dome. And when I started that column, it was really just like activists need to talk about sex and drugs more, right? I was like on a very basic level, those of us who do this very serious work, you know, what I was seeing was that every gathering I was going to, every space I was going to, people were doing sex and drug things, um, but not in responsible ways. And then it was causing a lot of dissonance and harm and breakdowns. And sometimes like whole, you know, organizations coming apart, um, organizations that we really needed were coming apart because people didn't know how to have necessary conversations around boundaries and consent and attraction and flirtation and what's appropriate and not appropriate. And so all of that was popping off. I was like, I'm just going to start writing about these things more openly. And then the Me Too movement, um, you know, came back into the forefront and in, in a new way. And all of a sudden it was like, in every direction you're turning, People are like, oh, I've had similar experiences. I've gone through that too. And here's where it happened to me. And just starting to hear all these stories. And I, I started to hear patterns because that's how my mind works. It's like, I'm synthesizing. I'm a facilitator. Um, so I work with groups to always try to find like, what is the easiest way through what's happening here? And a lot of that is like, let me synthesize. Let me find the pattern amongst you where there's some alignment. There's some uh, unknown solidarity, Right. And in that process, I was like, a lot of this is we don't have, we're not taught the skills we actually need to navigate being adults with libidos and bodies and, um, and trauma and um, socialization. So um, then the column took a, a veer, right? And I started being like, well, what are the skills? You know, so one of the big turning points for this was when that Aziz Ansari story broke. And I was mm. like, okay, like, my first reaction to it was like, is that really so bad? Right. And it was, it was surprising to me because I'm very much a like, yes, you know, I'm a survivor of multiple kinds of assault and harm 
And I believe people when they're coming through these experiences. And yet I found myself being like, well, but, but that's not it. Right. And I was like, okay, what's this about? And I was like, well, first, what this woman is writing about is so common to my own experiences that it's hard to, to pull out the distinction that's like, oh, that's also harm. Like just because it's common doesn't mean it's not horrific, right? Yeah. And then the second piece of it was like, there's so many places I can see in this story where this person could have spoken up and shifted the trajectory of the evening and didn't. And I, I know that piece intimately. Like I'm like, I've been there. I've been on those dates. I've been through those nights. I've been through those experiences of intimacy that I wasn't actually interested in, but I didn't know how to turn the tide. And so that that got me interested in like, okay, well, what are the skill sets? One is like, how do we learn to use our voices in real time if we've been socialized to be polite and to protect other people's feelings over our own physical safety and our own physical comfort, right? Um, Like that's deep conditioning. And so how do we deprogram ourselves? And then I was like, well, what are the other things, right? Like what are the conditions under which I would get naked? How do I negotiate consent? what are the things that I even fantasize about? And like, have I been trained to have sort of rape oriented fantasies or power dominating, you know, harmful to women fantasies? (laughs) Am I in my fantasies? You know, am I safe in these fantasies? Um, So I just started going down that road and each column um, was me learning in real time and then writing and sharing and with each piece being like, and here's the homework that, we need to do if we want this to shift. And that became the hot and heavy homework that is throughout the book. Um, So the book is structured. The first section of it is all about sex and particularly sex in this Me Too era. Then there's a section about drugs and, you know, uh, interesting experiments like the People's Dispensary in Oakland and like how do we actually reclaim this industry of weed for those who are still locked behind bars because of it and for the communities who have been negatively impacted by losing um, their hustlers, you know? Mm. So, um, so there's a whole section there. And then there's a, you know, a section where I'm looking at like all these other things that are really pleasure in a liberated life. Right. Um, So I started to get really excited when I was like, Oh, humor. Like, how are we using humor in our (laughs) movements, right? Like, what is the politics of wholeness in our movements? How do we bring our fashion selves? How do we adorn ourselves? How do we bring disability justice into it? What do we do when we get cancer? How about when we're over the age of 60? Like, I was thinking about, like, all these aspects of pleasure that I, I don't see talked about or written about, you know? And I know that they've liberated people. So the book is, and it feels like, I could have get definitely given even more of a textbook. Like I'm like, it could have been 800, 1200 pages. There was so much <laughs> that I was like learning about. There's big chunks that I know are not in there the way I want them in there. I think there could be a ton more about kink and BDSM and the lessons we can learn from that, that brilliant negotiation. Um, but it's a start and it's, it's honest for, for me. I was like, I want to write about stuff. I, I understand or I know people who understand and, and can get into this with me. Yeah, maybe you could talk a little bit about some of the many other voices that are a part of this book. And yeah. um, and I'm not asking you to pick favorites. I would never do that. No. Um, but <laughs> but um, I'm wondering if there are a few of the, you know, conversations or essays from 
you know, other thinkers, activists, pleasure seekers <laughs> that yeah. particularly stand out to you or that really unlocked something for you, not just, you know, you're like, oh, I'm glad to have this represented in the book, but you were like, whoa. <laughs> yeah, I've had, um, oh, I feel like I've had a great blessing because almost everyone who's in this book is someone who I'm like, I know this person. Like I've seen how they've manifested um, a pleasure principle for their own lives and reclaimed aspects of pleasure in their own lives. There are a few people that I want to highlight. One is Amita Swadin, who is um, a founder of something called Mirror Memoirs. Um, but she's done a ton, ton, ton of work around childhood sexual abuse. How do we come forward and tell those stories very honestly? And how do we deal with the fact that we really have, at this point, an epidemic of child sexual abuse not just in this country, but like everywhere. And uh, and then how do we reclaim from our, from that trauma? How do we reclaim ourselves and our right to pleasure, our right to fair power dynamics in our pleasure? And recently I got to be in, on a panel with her. And one of the things she was talking about there was like, and how do we also not give up our families in that process? Like mm. in the process of that healing, that like there's also pleasure that a lot of times we love the people who harmed us. How do we navigate the complexities of all that? So that piece, I'm in a lot of healing myself around that arena of work. And so each time I read or interact with that piece, I'm like, I'm so grateful that this was written and that she's she's just a prolific thinker, you know? Um, I also am deeply moved to include the work of Alana devich Cyril, who passed away last October after a battle with metastatic um, gastroesophageal cancer. And she um, is the love of life uh, for a friend of mine named Malkia Cyril, who Malkia is basically like the reason that we all are going to have access to the internet in the future. Um, like Malkia <laughs> is just like that, that dude, that organizer, um, and that stud spend to Alana. Um, and I got to interview Alana just like, you know, from the moment she got her diagnosis, she really was oriented towards pleasure so much of the time that she was sick and towards laughter and towards music and towards enjoying every second of life. And I have an interview with her where she says, you know, cancer is hard and I'm just going to let that be hard, but I'm not going to suffer any more than I have to. And that we need to like grab pleasure up, that we need to like take it seriously and move towards it. Um, that it's not something we should just passively wait around to like arrive to us. And I, I, every time again, I hear her, I have a recording of her from about two weeks before she passed because I, I recognized, we recognized um, that she wasn't going to be around long enough to do a tour, right? Um, and so we did this interview the day that she renewed her vows to Mac and I've been playing it at each of the events. And it's just like, <laughs> I think it's so powerful um, and such a good reminder that it's like none of this is promised and none of this is necessarily easy, but it's worth the work. Um, it's worth the work. So those two are really crucial. And then I have, um, ah, there's like so many, I have a whole section on like burlesque and adornment um, mm. that feels like really crucial. And I was able, um, I was able to interview people who like I've watched them like go out into the world and do burlesque and just been like, whoa, like someday when I grow up, maybe. Right. Um, and they're members of the the Brown Radical Ass Burlesque, Brask Burlesque, um, the out of Brooklyn. Um, and then I got to also speak with Taja Lindley. So 
that piece feels important because I definitely, I remember when I became an executive director, I was an executive director at an organization called the Ruckus Society, which trains people in direct action. And I remember at that time being like, whoa, there's people out here doing burlesque like that. That is really a big deal. <laughs> like, I can't imagine ever taking that kind of risk. And meanwhile, I'm like, you know, we're out here training people to go and like confront the police, but taking off, you know, a shirt in front of people seemed like so much more terrifying. Um, <laughs> and they write about it in such a beautiful, inviting way. Um, that's just like, this is liberating and it is scary. And it is possibly the most intimate thing that you can do in a room with people. Um, so yes, those are some of the ones that, that right now are kind of at the forefront of my thinking with the book. One thing that was so great for me about reading all these different perspectives on pleasure is that I think we're also conditioned to, even when we're hearing about a new way someone is experiencing pleasure, we're immediately sizing ourselves up against it. Like, you know, the fact yes. that I'm like, oh my God, I don't think I would ever derive pleasure from doing burlesque. Um, right. What's wrong right. with me? Am I, right. am I, you know, like, what exactly. do I need to change? And, and that, like, that happens so quickly for me and I think for other people of like, oh, why can't I relax in a bath? Or like, why can't I, you know? <laughs> uh, um, it, 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 and right. I'm, wondering, <laughs> I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about the tension between openness to kind of exploring some new pathways to pleasure versus that inevitable aspect of self-judgment or, you know, kind of immediately thinking about the ways that pleasure would not be safe in the world or, you know, all that yeah, stuff that, yeah. that might come up right after. Well, I mean, I think first I, I want to say that, I, you know, we are in a particular generation. I'm really curious to see what comes after us. But, you know, if you're, you said you're 37. And I am. I'm 40. Um, and so I feel like we came up in this particular moment where it was like, the effort, all effort was about desexualizing the workplace and desexualizing mm. the public sphere while it was like, there's hooters, you know, like <laughs> men can have like sexual spaces where they can go even have a lunch meeting and there can just be boobs available. But like for women who are entering any kind of workplace, um, you know, we cannot possibly even wear a shirt that might suggest we have breasts because that would be too tempting for Bob, Right. And mm. poor, poor Bob is just out here like, what's he supposed to do if a breast is in his face, you know? And so poor I Bob, <laughs> poor Bob, right? I mean, like I cannot imagine being wired such that I couldn't handle being around attractive human beings without, you know, a boner or something horrible happening to me. Um, right. So these poor men, right? <laughs> so I'm just like, 
we've tried that method of being like, well, we'll just create these rules where no one will look at each other or talk to each other or feel feelings or anything. And that will keep us from raping each other. And it hasn't worked, right? Like sexual harm is still happening all the time. And, and at the same time, we're feeling this deep repression or this deep separation from ourselves as bodies that can feel. Um, and we have access to all the things we need to numb feeling. Um, but we don't have any space where we're just being told, like, here's how to feel, you know, here's how you know you're feeling. And here's why it's important to feel. And, and not, and I don't mean feel like emotionally, you know, that that's great too. And I think that comes with it, but even just at the level of sensation, I'm like, I, part of what happened for me with my trauma was like, there was a long time where I couldn't really feel much below my neck. Like I could have the idea of feeling aroused, but like, there wasn't much that was actually taking place. Like it's taken years of being on a table and healing, um, you know, a healer's table. <laughs> You're like, what table? Um, uh, <laughs> and where is the table that heals that? Um, so it's your like, magical you know, table <laughs> and my magical table that I, I fly around on. Um, but no. So I, I think that that's a big piece of it is like the way that 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 socialization worked was to convince each of us that we were wrong. And that we each needed to like control our behaviors in some way while also making ourselves more beautiful and more desirable, um, but but not letting ourselves be seen as desirable overtly, right? Um, so there's like a really messed up game that's been played with us for a long time. For me, it's like the, as, as long as I can remember, I was being given the very confusing virgin whore stuff, right? Right. It's like, this is how you're supposed to show up, but not too much. But just, you know, let him choke you in the bedroom. But like, you know, act like you've never had sex before in public. All these, this sort of back and forth, back and forth. So I'm never surprised when people are like, I struggle with pleasure. I don't know if I can feel it. I have a hard time slowing down. I have a hard time giving myself any time. That's the other big piece. I went on a sabbatical in 2012 after doing... Um, maybe 17, 18 years of organizing or something. I'm not sure. The numbers kind of fall away, but I had been doing it enough and I was burnt out and I was tired. And so I went away. And one of the big things I learned while I was away was like, I had value that was outside of anything I could produce for other people. Like just mm. me being alive was a valuable thing. And I could get a lot of joy and pleasure from my own company and from books and from a lot of things that, I hadn't been encouraged to pursue um, and that I didn't need someone else to affirm my life in that way. Like I had lots of people to affirm my life, but you know, that way that you get trained, like, you know, all of your life before your big romantic partnership is just like the prequel. Um, mm. And then, and then, you know, then you've real, your real life begins when you fall in love with like another person. And <laughs> Also, sorry, I'm just pleasure. having to laugh at this. <laughs> right? You know yeah. what I'm talking yeah. about, right? I do, so I do, yeah. I'm just like, you know, I, for me, all of that kind of has fallen away where I'm like, oh, the most productive best times of my life have been when I haven't been partnered with anyone else. And a lot of the work that I've done in relationship has been healing from, tra like recognizing trauma and healing from trauma and getting myself kind of sandpapered in a relationship with another human being and then coming out and being like, okay, what did I learn from that one? Now let me keep going. And and finding that I'm having this like delectable, incredible life because it's not defined by other people. And when I have lovers, they don't decenter me or my work or 
you know, my callings, right? So all of that long answer, but it's like, it's not, I think that a lot of times people are like, oh, I just need to learn how to take a bath and then it'll be like all good. And it's like, no, no, no. Getting in touch with the part of you that believes you don't deserve it, that might start you down the path towards some healing. But understanding that it's not just you, that it's actually like a systemic thing is for a lot of people gives them permission to truly begin their healing process. I really love how um, pleasure, and, and often pleasure is very personal, right? I mean, how we experience yes. is personal, rooting into ourselves is personal, but you also yeah. um, write about and take this collective view of pleasure and what it can yes. mean to a group of people or an everyone <laughs> category who is looking yeah. for more justice and liberation and um, a better world, essentially. And I'm curious about that leap and how you see personal pleasure or like the that really intimate solo experience of pleasure connected to a collective view of pleasure. Yeah. You know, it's it's been one of the great, like, I'm, I think I would be a horrific person <laughs> if I hadn't clued into the, the pleasures of the collective. And because mm. I'm like, I, I am a Virgo. I can come out and sort of be dazzling in like brief stints, but mostly I'm a hermit. Mostly like <laughs> I want to be alone in my house, quietly reading books, like, and then looking at the internet, right? Right. So, you describe yourself as a hermit nudist in the book. I just have to exactly. say, which is amazing. I'm a hermit nudist. Yeah. <laughs> like, I'm like, I got dressed for this interview, even because I was like, just in case, you know, we're going to be on video. But I'm barely <laughs> keeping my clothes on now. It's and I'm like, this is who I am. I really love to be naked and I love to be alone. And so I'm like, but I'm also connected to a long lineage of of people who have taught me that, you know, particularly like here in Detroit, James Boggs is one of our activist orient teachers and elders, ancestors. And one of the things he says, you're nobody unless you're somebody to a bunch of other somebodies, right? Mm -hmm. And for me, I've taken that to be like, okay, my healing is not is not that meaningful unless it's connected to the healing of a lot of other people who look and ha and ex experience life the way that I have. And I've had this really gorgeous, um, you know, gorgeous experiences multiple times of being like, this felt good for me. How can I how can I spread this to other people who deserve to also feel great? Right. So um, an example of that is I went off and did this thing called the the um, Hedgebook Writing Retreat. It's like, mm -hmm. uh, you know what it is? It's like a writing retreat for, for women off the coast of Seattle. And it's like so beautiful, right? Everything about it is like you're in a cottage in the woods and someone's making you gorgeous meals. And like, it just feels like peak, you know, luxurious writing space. And so I came home from that space and and then I realized like most of the people in my life don't have access to that, Right. Um, either they're not like, you know, they haven't given themselves over to the writer in them. Um, and so they wouldn't think to apply for it or they wouldn't think that they deserved it. Right. Or they just, it's not even on their radar. Like, you know, some of the folks that I organize with and think with here in Detroit, they're like that. I didn't even know that such a thing could exist. Right. So I was like, mm -hmm. I can create that here. Like I can do that in my house. So I started holding and for about a year was able to hold these monthly writing retreats. And I would have people come to my home and set up little writing stations around the home. And I would cook for people or sometimes we would have people kind of potluck it out. And the the best part of my house is that I have the most badass bathtub in the world. It's like this 
I don't know how. It's like my landlord installed it 15 years ago and the jets don't work on it. Like maybe it had jets once, but it's just big. And so that would be a writing station is I would run a bath for someone and have like a little screen in front of it and they could be back there writing while other people use the bathroom or whatever. But it just created this like super intimate, luxurious, you know, shared experience. And I have to say, I enjoyed those days as much as I enjoyed that solo time by myself. And that was really helpful for me to know that I was like, oh, sharing this does not deplete it, right? It's mm. it's watching all these other people be like, I'm also worthy of being cooked for and having beauty and being loved up on and like laying in the sun. And I'm, I'm worth all of it. Like if Oprah's worthy, worthy of it, I'm also worthy of it, right? Like I tell people that all the time. <laughs> I'm like, you know, that's one of the lessons from Octavia Butler, who's really one of the primary influencers of all my work. But she's she says that like we are all God's seed, like we're all divine beings, no more and no less than that. And I think a lot of times we're like, oh, some people are more divine and they deserve better and others are less. And, and you know, we systematize that either you're rich or, you know, you're a royalty or you're really pretty, right? So we're like, oh, really pretty people deserve massages, but like, I don't know. You know, and it's just like, no, fuck that, right? Everybody is a miraculous body that we couldn't recreate and all these bodies need the same things. And so that that has led to a lot of the ways that I approach my organizing work too, my facilitation work. I'm always trying to figure out how do I make this feel good? Because these are the hardest workers that I know, right? These are people who are like, mm-hmm. we're fighting for black liberation. We're trying to get mamas bailed out of jail. We're trying to stop the police from killing us. Like these are folks who are like, they're taking calls day and night all the time. And I'm like, how this meeting is really important. How can I make sure that they enjoy it? Is there a way to bring song in? Can we have a dance break? Like, is the food going to be on point? Like, how can I make sure that it feels good for us as a collective body to be making this change, which is also more compelling? Like, people want to come back if it feels good and it tastes good. Right. And I think that also that leap, um, you know, just talking about not stopping at having a pleasurable experience or rooting down into your own pleasure, but then figuring out how to extend that to me is really the key when when I was reading this book of like asking questions of how do I receive all this knowledge as mm. a white, cisgender, heterosexual woman, like aspects of my identity that um, are probably not going to change and that are associated with a lot of pri- privilege. I mean, because I do think that, you know, the really um, surface level version of this conversation is about, you know, self-care. It's like a goop newsletter. It's like a white woman in a bath kind of thing, you know, which. Um, yes. <laughs> and, and I think that yes. there's this one of the kind of hangups that I have sometimes um, is thinking about, um, OK, like, what does it mean to center pleasure for myself given all these other privileges? And I think that leap that you are able to make here from the personal to the collective um, is, you know, was important for me in reading it um, with the identities that I have, even though I know Uh that you are really centering the um, pleasure experiences of Black women, for example. Um, Yeah. I mean, I'll say this. I tend to do my work in the spirit of that Kumbahi River Collective statement, which is like, if Black women were free, it would necessitate that everyone else was also free because of Mm -hmm. the way that our systems are structured. And so I really tune in as a Black woman. I write towards and for Black women, but I understand that like, if we're getting it, everyone else is going to get it. And I just, I was in Toronto (laughs) recently and I was like, listen, I literally told them, I was like, my orgasms are liberating all of you. Like, 
it's it's me reclaiming what my body was supposed to be from white supremacy is is good news for everyone, right? Like because that's a lie and it's it's never going to work. But I had a white woman ask me this question yesterday, a little bit of like, do I have permission to also be feeling mm. pleasure, right? Um, given all the the messed up stuff that white folks have done in the world and are doing. And I really felt like, you know, as long as you're doing your own work and as long as you have some spirit of redistribution, right? Like I, and I, I feel responsible for having this. I'm a mixed race woman. So I show up as a light skinned black woman. I am college educated and world traveled. And I think that because I have those privileges, it's really important for me to constantly be thinking about how I'm redistributing at all the time. How am I redistributing any kind of access that I'm getting um, that is anyway related to white supremacy? How am I redistributing that? Um, and that shows up in who I invite to submit pieces to my projects. It shows up in who I focus my work on and towards, who I mentor for free, right? Like there's just a million ways that we're each resources to each other. And that's what I tell white folks is I'm like, if you are using your platform to redistribute um, resources and to make sure stuff is getting to people, then yeah, go ahead and take that bath, <laughs> right? Mm. Um, but if you are, you know, I think this is one of the areas where Gwyneth Paltrow has gotten in the most trouble, right? Because I'm like, I'm sure she has great intentions, but everything she offers seems to have no awareness of the privilege that she brings to it. And so without that awareness, she's constantly putting her her well-manicured, well-pedicured foot in her, you know, well-cared-for mouth, right? Because people look at it and they're like, that's not realistic, uh, you know, for me as a working mom. That's not realistic for me as a black woman. That's not realistic, you know, for whatever it is. I'm not a working mom, but, you know, I've heard things. And, <laughs> you know, to me, I'm like, that's that's always the piece. It's like pleasure is also, it's not hedonism. It's not like feeling good and never having any suffering. To me, it's saying like suffering is an automatic part of life. We're all going to lose people we love. We're all going to wonder about our belonging, right? Like that's that's what this structure yields. And inside of that, we don't have to add to it by making it as hard as possible for our bodies to exist here and for us to be with each other. In fact, we benefit if we make it as easy as possible for us to be with each other, which means learning what feels good, learning what satisfaction feels like. I love that. And and I also think about the, the fallacy of the kind of like goop-ish self-care narrative, for lack of a better term for it, is that it doesn't, everyone can tell that sort of a lie for the future. Like there's no future in which it looks realistic that we're all paying this much attention to everything that goes in our bodies and taking lots of baths and, <laughs> and steaming our various parts. Like, you know, I mean, yes. we all know that that's a lie, like as a, as a potential future. And um, and I think like maybe a good note for us to end on is um, something that kind of comes up in a few different ways in um, in your work, which is essentially like we're going to run out of steam only reacting to the negative and pushing for what we want to see in the world and like pleasure mm -hmm. as a way of knowing what we want to see is is the sustainable way. And I think you write all organizing is science fiction. Yes. Um, maybe you could talk a little bit about that perspective and how, mm -hmm. how you actually live that when it feels like, you know, we could all go out of breath listing all the things that are negative uh -huh. requiring and demanding <laughs> our attention. That's right. <laughs> um, so a couple of thoughts. One is I, 
you know, I recently did a vaginal steam. I just feel like I need to be honest about that because (laughs) I don't want to pretend like that doesn't happen over here in Adrian's pleasure activism land. But I do want to say that- Was it pleasurable? It was so interesting. (laughs) Well, I think pleasure, you know, it's pleasurable afterwards because afterwards you walk around like, I feel like I have somehow steamed the entire inside of my body. Um, Really? So that, it's very interesting. Yeah. Okay. While you're sitting there, it's a little hot, right? You're like, I don't- (laughs) It's a little hot. Like, are we cooking it? And we steam? I mean, like, you know, because we think about steaming. It's like, oh, that's how I cook, you know, dumplings. Like, what am I doing to my pussy, right? Um, But it's, you know, one of these things. I'm very susceptible to things that say, like, ancient practice. I'm just like, ooh, okay. I mean, (laughs) you know, if it it made it this long. So, um, but I'll say this. I, I got to go to the spa recently with two organizers that I really love and respect. And one of them, uh, Charlene Carruthers, you know, one of the things that she talks about is like, how do we take turns with all the different pieces that it takes to keep a society going, right? And Mm. like, whatever economic system you want to call that, it's like, how do we take turns holding the hard work that it takes to be in community and takes to have a functional society so that we also get to share the pleasures? And I love that as a framework because for me, that's all I'm ever saying is I'm like, I don't want us to banish hot tubs. I also don't want to make sure we're like individually have every single person has their own hot tub, but right in the middle where it's like we share the work to build the hot tub. And then we have a hot tub that we have collective access to and we share the work of keeping it clean. And you know what I'm saying? Like we share the work of like, you know, uh, or share the resources or share the finances it takes to get it fixed if it breaks and things like that. That it's like, it's not just like, we get all the enjoyment and then when stuff gets hard that we outsource that to someone else. I think that's the tendency, um, again, the socialization that we need to figure out, oh, how do I offset that in my own life? And I feel like my sci-fi vision for people when it comes to pleasure is that more and more people are able to access their feeling bodies, their feeling selves. And my sister and I just got to do an episode of, of How to Survive the End of the World at Brown University. And we asked, it was a, the focus was like queer and trans futures. And we asked people like, what are your visions for these things? And one of the young people in the audience was like, I'm not really imagining like a time or even a specific, like, here's how it's all going to look. But she, she guided us to all put our hands on our hearts and to feel into our hearts that like, the feeling that we'll have of like safety and dignity and deep belonging and like just knowing that like queer and trans people are safe and black people are safe and babies are safe, that that is a feeling that it's like, it's actually in us. And it's the thing that compels us against these systems that do not provide it for us, right? Is that somewhere in us, we know that it can be better. And we put our hands there and we, we recognize that like, it is inevitable that we will win. It is inevitable that we will create this safety for each other. Like we are beginners, we are babies, we're still trying to figure it all out, but it was inevitable. And like to just imagine that and that, it blew my, my mind because I, I think of that all the time as I'm like, my vision is less and less of a, of a place and more and more of a feeling, right? That I'm like, I will feel free. I will feel like no, there's no man in Congress who can decide anything about my body, right? Like I'm like, oh, I'll feel that. Like I'll, I'll know that in my system. It won't be a question. Um, and I think about the pleasures that I have now will not feel for, forbidden. They won't feel judged. It won't feel like I'm possibly, 
you know, at risk of death if I travel somewhere and hold the hand of whichever lover I'm with at that time, right? There's all these places where I'm like, oh, that feeling of safety that drops your shoulders down and help your butt relaxes and your gut softens. You're just like, I'm at ease. I don't have to hold it together for anyone here or protect myself against anything. That's my vision for the future. Oh, that's so beautiful. And I can't think of a better note to end on. Um, For listeners who want to follow you, hear more from you, read more from you, um, where can they find you? I love Instagram. It's my favorite of the social medias. And I post pictures and stories and songs and stuff there. And then if people are interested in bringing pleasure activism to their work or anything like that, um, they can look at, or they can just email actually, um, bookings at alliedmedia.org. Uh, well, it has been such a pleasure to have you on the podcast and to talk with you a little bit today. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Y'all are, awesome. you're like, this is incredible. I'm really grateful y'all exist. I think that friendship is one of the great pleasures in life too. And having oh. a podcast of friends is like the shit. So, yay. Friendship is one of my great life pleasures for sure. Um, Me too. I'm like, this has yeah. been a, this is one of the great joys of my life and why the book ends with a conversation I'm having with two of my closest friends in the world because I'm like, I'm tired of decentering the pleasures of friendship for the sake of like mm-hmm. romantic pleasure. Right. Yep. I'm like, these, these are the relationships that last, honey. <laughs> okay. <laughs> like I'm going to lean into that. We're going to go on our, our sistercations and our wocations and stuff like that. So yes, friends. Right. Ah, oh, that was lovely. Even upon repeat, it was lovely and I needed it. And Hopefully current Aminatu is no longer spiraling. I will say this, that I think we chose our the archival episodes were resurfacing because we need them right now too. <laughs> there is like some <laughs> personal uh, interest here. Wow. And don't give away the entire secret sauce of Call Your Girlfriend. Everything we do is because we need it. I mean, just for us. Anyway, I will see you on the internet outside the spiral. Uh, see you on the internet, boo-boo. I hope that current Anne is doing something nice for herself or calling her friend who is spiraling to tell her to calm down. Oh. You can find us many places on the internet, callyourgirlfriend.com, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher. We're on all your faves. Subscribe, rate, review. You know the drill. Call us back. Leave a voicemail at 714-681-2943. That's 714-681-CYGF. You can email us, callyrgf at gmail.com. We're on Instagram and Twitter at callyrgf. And you can buy our book, Big Friendship, anywhere you buy books, but we are really partial to independent bookstores. Our theme song is by Robin. Original music composed by Carolyn Pennypacker Riggs. Our logos are by Kanisha Sneed. Our producer is Jordan Bailey. This podcast is executive produced by Gina Delvac. <laughs>